1: Welcome to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman.
2: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. And we are joined today to share his knowledge with us mister rick Diaz, who is a representative of adult protective services in the state of texas and he's going to help us to understand a lot about this organization which can be so easily misunderstood or misperceived so i'm looking forward to this discussion rick spent a career in the air force twenty two years where he worked in avionics and then moved into a command position as a first sergeant um, he uh... Completed a bachelor's degree in gerontology at Abilene Christian University. He worked at the Abilene State Supported Living Center as a direct care aide for two years, then went to the Area Agency on Aging and filled various positions there, and is now a supervisor and in home supervisor for the adult protective services in this area of West Texas. So, Rick, thank you for being with us and welcome to the program.
3: Thank you Dr Brinkman. It's my pleasure to be here.
2: Rick, the first thing that I want to say to you is how much I appreciate what you and your family has given the country through your military service you know the the military career has a lot of excitement in it it has a lot of fun and interesting things but it also has some very significant sacrifices that you don't see in a lot of other careers and those include temporary duty in various places around the world and things like that so I want to express my appreciation to you and your family for the gift that you've given this country
3: thank you very much It was my honor How long have you been with Adult Protective Services now? It's only been 18 months. Seems like it's been a long time, but um, it's only been 18 months. You
2: like this job, don't you?
3: I like it a lot.
2: I am glad to hear that. You know, um, I don't know that anybody considers it good fortune to have Adult Protective Services calling on you, and yet it's uh, such a critically important area. Um, Every state in the nation has some aspect of the government that is committed specifically to protecting the welfare of the vulnerable people in society, and the uh, aging population is... Uh, easily recognized vulnerable com- uh, component of society and then certainly those older individuals that have, are experiencing cognitive decline are so vulnerable to so many things including to their own bad judgments and bad decisions so um, tell me what the mission is of Adult Protective Services.
3: The official mission is to protect older adults and people with disabilities from abuse, neglect, and exploitation by investigating and providing or arranging for services as necessary to alleviate or prevent further maltreatment.
2: Okay, very good. That's very clearly and very very nicely stated there. Um, What are the types of situations that APS has to respond to? What's a prototypical situation?
3: Probably one of the more common situations is um, a person finds himself unable to pay for the basic necessities of life, be that water or electricity or gas, um, air conditioner goes out in the summer, heater goes out in the winter, Um, those are all um, serious but not life threatening, but if you compound that with the person who has COPD, for example, or um, other chronic health conditions, it can be very serious very fast.
2: And then very life threatening as well. Yeah. You know, the uh, winter times in the north and the summer times in the south are times when the aging population is really vulnerable and forgetting to pay utilities or not having the money to mm-hmm. or getting confused, thinking that you've already paid them or something like that can all contribute very significantly. Now, in the overall state government, I jokingly asked you earlier, explain the state government to me, and uh, uh, we'll save that for another program. But in the overall state government, where does Adult Protective Services
3: fit in? Currently, it falls under Health and Human Services Commission, and it's a department underneath that. Uh, the Department of Family and Protective Services, which includes also child protective services, adult protective services, and child care licensing. Um, probably the the ratio is CPS is about ninety percent, APS is about nine percent, and one percent is child care licensing.
2: Oh, I did not realize that APS was that much smaller than CPS. Interesting.
3: I think um, there are some very important distinctions between CPS and APS, and you kind of alluded to it earlier when we were just talking, and that is is that um, if you were just a person at home and CPS shows up at your doorstep, that would be cause for concern um, because you don't get a choice at, to refuse the services of CPS if they show up, which is very different from APS because if we show up, and uh, the, the person we come to visit says, I don't want anything to do with you guys. I'd rather not talk to you today. Uh, we have to leave. Uh, as long as there is no concern for their capacity to make decisions. Um, if they ask us to leave, we leave um, at their request.
2: So at that moment, the
3: caseworker
2: has to make a quick judgment. Is this person of sound enough mind to make that decision? And you've got 15 seconds, 30 seconds to make that judgment um, and are the allegations or the complaints or whatever it is that you call what uh, the, what has been called in, are those serious enough that they would have to override that somehow? You're saying they can't even override it at that point.
3: Exactly. So one of the options they would have is to, um, and, it, it's gonna and it's going to vary with casework and it's going to vary with the person that they see it, they're going to have to use their best judgment and decide if they can continue attempting um, or if uh, they need to walk away. They may come back another day and see if a different time of day or a different day makes a difference. Um, You don't know for sure if there's somebody behind that door threatening that person at the door, make them go away.
2: And we talked about that a little bit under the um, topic of uh, financial exploitation of the elderly and the degree to which uh, some people known to the older person, family members, neighbors, um, uh, the trusted people may um, bully or may intimidate or may strike fear into that older person to get them to do what they want. So that would be an example of that.
3: Yes. And because we get reports from all different sources, we get them from the victim themselves, from family members, from concerned neighbors, from uh, doctors, from home health providers, from social services agencies, from uh, the clerk at the grocery store. Anybody who suspects something is amiss can call in a report. And so... Um, Often, what's reported and what the investigation finds are two very different things. Uh, Sometimes it looks absolutely horrendous on the report, and once you get in the home, things are fine. Other times, things look concerning in the report, and you get in the home, and they're far worse.
2: Hmm. And the only way to know is to have someone in that home, then, to find out. Right.
3: Exactly. Do a thorough investigation on scene. So sometimes the
2: victim, him or herself, may call and and present an issue. What would be the kind? Of, what kind of things have you seen there, Rick? That they might call about?
3: Say, for example, um, it's the twenty-first of the month, and um, I I don't know what happened, but I've only got two of my heart medications left. And I can't refill them until the first of the month because I just, I don't have the money.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So that would really be, that would show a lot of foresight on the part of that individual to know to call APS for that purpose. And, uh, and it's a very important call because they may not survive till the end of the month when they can refill it.
3: And so that that's, falls into a very important category of of abuse that we investigate, and that would be self-neglect. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not purposeful. It's not on purpose that I didn't save enough money to be able to keep my medications full. But, you know, sometimes it might be confusion. I'm not sure if I didn't buy enough medication or if I misplaced them or if I, I just don't know. But I've got to have it or um, my heart's going to act up.
2: Well, and similarly, uh, let me make a note here. And uh, similarly, then the person may have confused the medications, and that in that manner, then you find out they've been doubling the dose, um, not intentionally, but uh, taking twice the dose that they should be of a medication
3: as well. Right. And so uh, I remember a recent case where uh, what the worker found in the home after the interview over medication problems, um, when they went into the bedroom, there was a pile of medications of various sorts, not in the bottles, out of the bottles oh and my on the sheets. Um, so, that's very disconcerting.
2: So, someone was trying to figure out what is this pill, what is that pill, and that's a pretty dangerous situation as well. Very. I know that um, uh, under the self-neglect category, one of the things that comes to my attention at times, um, you have an older person or older couple whose children all live a distance away and they get into bad nutritional state. For example, um, I have heard people say that uh, they looked in the cupboards and there was nothing but breakfast cereal, box after box after box of breakfast cereal, or um, find that someone is eating things that they don't need to eat, pet food, for example, um, or um, eating things that have been in the refrigerator too long and risking becoming ill. So the self-neglect area really is... I would think a pretty significant area, right?
3: It is, um, and there's also medical neglect, um, where a person just either doesn't recognize that they have something that needs medical attention, or they don't like their doctor, or they don't like to pay the copay. There's a myriad of reasons, but um, they might have a decubitus ulcer on on their buttocks, and and just let it go and go and go until uh, finally somebody notices and reports it.
2: Or a fall with an injury that they won't uh, get help for.
3: Exactly. You
2: know, those are very challenging situations, and the family would like to use powers of persuasion, you know, or logical argument, and sometimes uh, that is just not going to get the job done. In fact, just in the past week, I Um, saw an individual who had fallen and had a laceration to the cheek and was unwilling to have it attended to. It obviously needed attention, and um, she wouldn't listen to her family, but, you know, um, that's the, the only other option they have is to physically restrain her and take her to... An emergency department or something like that. Well, we're gonna go to a break, and when we return, we will talk more with Rick Diaz from Abilene Protective Services.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where
1: did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Grey Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it.
5: By making some important changes in your life, you can move forward from where you are to where you wish to be. It is becoming the change you want to see. It can be a sort of experiment, if you will. On Moving Forward, Wellness One Step at a Time, your host, Dr. Serena Wadwa, will introduce you to ideas that can help improve your health, relationships, and finances. You probably have at least one part of your life that needs improving. Make an appointment now to join us every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Neuro Matters the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Welcome back to the
2: program. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking to Rick Diaz, who is a supervisor for adult protective services and um, Rick and I were just talking about this whole area of self-neglect or medical neglect and how complicated those situations can become and how dangerous they can become as well and Rick during the break you mentioned to me something that is critically important to the decision making and to the limiting the authorities of APS and things like that and that is a person does have the legal right to make a bad decision right
3: that is totally correct so what
2: are the kinds of bad decisions that a family would become upset about contact APS and APS would say unless there's uh, incapacity um, the person has the right to make that decision
3: I think an excellent example that everybody could understand would be a situation where a person has hoarding behavior Mm. Um, it can get extremely bad and, and most of us would find it um, repulsive, unsafe, unsanitary, unhealthy, lots of negative things we would find about that situation uh, but it's a disorder and people who do that often are very much in their comfort zone and all of that is part of their comfort.
2: So basically if I want to hoard you do not have the legal authority to deprive me of that choice. right, no, sir. And that's exactly it. And, of course, other things that uh, would be relevant here, financial decisions that somebody would make.
3: It's not unusual to hear of uh, somebody giving their home health worker cash or uh, blank checks or... Uh, use the debit card and get yourself something when you when you get my groceries uh, because I like you a lot and uh, it's my money and I want to do that for you.
2: So the home health agency may have a policy against that, but uh, that person cannot be deprived of the right to give that um, helper or assistant or aid or whatever to give them a gift of money or of uh, food or uh, anything along those lines, clothing or whatever, right? Exactly. Again, if the person has the capacity to make that decision, um, the you cannot deprive that person of the right to make that decision. Sometimes that, in in some cases, that involves significant financial contributions as well, doesn't it, to charities or… It
3: does. Uh, sometimes tithing is an issue. When you tithe so much that you can't pay your utilities, uh, that's a problem. Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and so, again, at what point do you deprive someone of the right to make a decision? So, so much of this boils down to things like values, um, communication within the family, um, different priorities, is the different perceptions of safety, and even different perceptions among family members on those topics as well, and that's what makes it so confusing. There are not many situations where one of your caseworkers would walk into a home and say, "This is not about values." You know, it's always about values.
3: Right. That's that's a very important distinction, um, and and it's it's a hard it's a hard habit to break. To, to think that everybody else um, has the same level of comfort with us with varying situations, um, uh, but it's not uncommon to find somebody who hasn't had working plumbing for 10 years, mm-hmm. and they're using buckets um, for toilets.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and But it's their choice, and if they have capacity, um, we have to allow them to continue that choice.
2: How do you determine whether they have capacity?
3: That's an excellent question. Um, we do some on the scene. Um, it's called indicators of capacity that the caseworkers are trained to use, um, and the, really they're just um, they're better used as a indicator indication of capacity. In other words, um, they will often put in a report there were no indicators of lack of capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, But if there are indicators and a suspicion then we will contact their primary care provider. Uh, We will contact and and if if they're uncooperative or just sometimes they're just unwilling to be the person who says Mr. Smith has no capacity. Um, And so we have contract providers who will go out and do a formal assessment and then give us a report the investigation.
2: And that would that include then like a mental status examination and things like that? So that would be the first pass and that may either say there are no indicators of lack of capacity or there are indicators one or the other. Can a person be compelled? Can that older individual be compelled to undergo an evaluation like that?
3: It's um, Something we do—we make every effort to allow them to choose to participate. And so, if there is a outright refusal, um, we will—we won't compel them. We'll use other evidence gathering techniques.
2: And so, then you have to find out—is their capacity or not—by what observations
3: of others, talking to collaterals, talking. Um, to anybody who has knowledge of the situation who can provide evidence to to lead us to a decision Um, because um, doing something against a person's will is the absolute last resort. And it's only when capacity is the reason they're not making good decisions that we step in So
2: potentially a court could compel uh, if there is a hearing to determine not capacity, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, competency. Yes. you know capacity being individual abilities, but competency being the overall um, assessment, uh, the court could compel someone to be evaluated by a designated person or by a person of their choice even right uh, to determine their competency. But short of that, you have to use wit and persuasion, basically, right?
3: Exactly, and and sometimes we have to we just have to walk away and wait for the next report, and hopefully, um, something will change, uh, eventually, that will uh, either resolve it or give us the ability to provide more help.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, family members often will report a situation to APS. What kinds of situations tend to arise there?
3: Sometimes it's it's as simple as, you know, they call grandma, and um, she doesn't sound like the way she usually sounds every time I call each month. And um, I'm really concerned because my grandma has never acted this way on the phone before. Is there any way somebody can go check on her?
2: So this is just a check, I guess, a welfare check kind of thing—a check for the well-being of this individual.
3: It would the report would have to contain just a little bit more concern than just a welfare check? Um, we would we would refer a true welfare check to law enforcement. Okay. Um, but if there are concerns that fall into what we look into, you know, you know, I'm thinking she's not taking her medicine is the reason that she might be acting this way on the phone
2: we would clearly
3: go look at that
2: so I'm uh, the family member who lives away calls about a specific thing I think she may have had a stroke she was slurring her speech or he may be forgetting his medications he's real confused and he wasn't yesterday things like that
3: right or I was talking to her and she kept calling me by the wrong name Mm mm-hmm what kinds
2: of things do neighbors call in
3: Neighbors call in things that uh, upset the peace and tranquility of the neighborhood, typically. Um, uncontrolled pets. Um, you know, I've noticed that she's got a bunch of cats, and I counted at least 12, and they just go in and out of the door freely. Um, or um, there's a strong odor coming from the home next door, and at, It not only upsets me, but it concerns me because I haven't seen my neighbor in a couple weeks, and somebody really needs to look at that.
2: I've had patients over the years who live in a neighborhood that is a safe neighborhood, and who have a lot of family members that live within a few blocks of there and the neighbors is a stable neighborhood where there's not a lot of turnover of residents and things like that and i've had patients who are just watched by everybody in the neighborhood because they know that there's cognitive impairment and they know that she likes to go out and walk at such and such a time she likes to walk her dog there's a risk of her getting lost not watching traffic, but if everybody in that neighborhood is watching for her um, and it's the kind of neighborhood where you can do that, then it continues to be okay. But. A lot of neighborhoods are not like that, wandering out of the house day or night. uh, If a person is unfortunately having to be at home alone through the day and a family member returns at the end of the day and will be there for the night, that, uh, that daytime that that person is there by him or herself can be a time when wandering takes place or other kinds of bad decisions may take place, right?
3: Right. So sometimes they'll get picked up by the police and they'll end up at the hospital. Or
2: Would they then make a referral to
3: APS? Yes, hospitals are very good about making reports um, of anything that concerns them. Um, just sometimes the story doesn't add up. Um, sometimes patients refuse treatment. They, they end up at the ER, but then they refuse treatment. Um, and when they have a se- severe condition like um, had one recently had pancreatitis Ooh. just did not want to be at the local hospital here wanted to be at a different hospital um, but the person had a history of checking in and leaving hospitals without treatment mm-hmm. so so the hospital
2: knows that things can go very wrong very fast if that person doesn't get treatment and the consideration again is at what point do you deprive that person of the right to decide I don't want to be in this hospital and I guess as, as long as you're paying for it and not someone else, you have the right to shop hospitals as well Certainly. to go from one to the other.
3: And so so that person was requesting that we put him in a hotel. Oh, I see. Pending transportation yeah. to his preferred hospital. But okay. because uh, the, the the doctor's advice was so um, strong in favor of medical treatment quickly, um, we decided not to participate in keeping him away from medical treatment against medical advice. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Well, we are going to go to a break and we will return with Rick Diaz and talk more about the role and activities of Adult Protective Services. So uh, we will be back in just a couple minutes.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness
5: Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Grey Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters, screen for memory disorders or forget it.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health &
1: Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters. The Brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us
2: in this very interesting discussion with Rick Diaz, who is a supervisor for Adult Protective Services. And we've talked about a number of different scenarios so far. And um, you had mentioned, Rick, that Adult Protective Services is one of those organizations that if you've never had to deal with it, you don't think much about it. But when a situation comes up where APS has to become involved, then it usually has some urgency with it and uh, a high level of
3: importance, right? That's true. It might be um, that they don't come directly to us. They might call the police and say, you know, my neighbor's got this situation going on and and it really scares me. And they might say, you need to call the hotline for abuse, neglect, and exploitation.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Now that uh, that is an interesting thing. Now, sources of referrals to APS. You mentioned social
3: social service agencies. What comes to your mind there? So sometimes it's as simple as the Meals on Wheel uh, delivery person uh, who sees that person five days a week um, notices something different. Um, either, uh, for example, you know the 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 top and the pants don't match or they've got um, mismatched socks or two different shoes or um, an odor coming from inside the home or just something different than what's typical.
2: That's interesting. Meals on Wheels does have a lot of access, and I know that uh, um, older individuals who depend on them for uh, much of their nutritional needs really Enjoys and trusts that delivery person a lot, so there's a lot of observation that that person would have. Well, when a situation is reported to APS, um, there's a standard follow-up response, right? That's correct. What's the decision tree that
3: APS then goes through? We use a a statewide intake center in Austin uh, that takes all of the calls, all of the internet reports. And um, they have a whole uh, decision tree to work by. First, they screen for eligibility, um, and
2: uh, and that would mean basically a resident of that state and um, over sixty-five having a
3: disability. And um, they're actually very. Liberal in the application of those guidelines, so as to not to let anybody slip through the cracks, the error on the side of caution. So
2: more concerned about keeping the cracks closed yes. than making a bad decision on allowing a, a situation to worsen. Right.
3: So we would rather take a report and find nothing there than to not take a report and something was there.
2: Now that APS caseworker then follows up and will be knocking on a door. How and and let's say that, that this is on, knocking on the door of the person about whom the uh, report has been made. How do people respond when they have that APS worker?
3: People seem to be um, not very much aware of adult protective services. If it's their first ever contact, um, the caseworker might have to repeat it several times and then explain. And um, we're a state agency. Um, we Provide social services to the elderly or to the or people with disabilities, and uh, we have a report uh, that requires me to come talk to you. Are you willing to speak to me? Um, and and so, like you said, it it takes you know some tact, it takes some judgment, it takes some skill um, to to be able to communicate. Uh, sometimes it's not in English. Sometimes it's not in verbal language. So uh, a variety of approaches have to be employed to be able to get through, uh, to do the job, to find out if the person needs help or not.
2: And of course, that caseworker will have some kind of an identification
3: Yes, to show that person.
2: Uh, But to some extent, that also requires the person in the home believing that that's actually a caseworker, number one, right? And number two... That that person is there for my good, not for
3: harm to me that's, that's to- an excellent point. I had uh, that situation last week when I went on a home visit with a worker uh, to observe um, the The alleged victim was very um, concerned um, about whether or not we were legitimate, and so she requested um, that her husband call our office. Uh, to verify that we were actual caseworkers. Um, and so, you know, we gladly consented to that. And, of course,
2: that's pretty good judgment if she's not certain.
3: Exactly. So. <laughs> and so it it turned out that, that she was satisfied with the response. And, um, and then she then opened up to the caseworker with her story.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and so it was a successful interview. <laughs> good. So there's a lot on the caseworker to
2: present the situation and the role understandably calmly and with a lot of reassurance that that person is there for their good exactly right because I I could certainly see people's first reaction being you're here to take me out of my home or you're here to somehow make my life less enjoyable than it is now
3: exactly it's that's a very important point and um, one of the ways that we, approach that concern is through our core values. And so, um, if if you don't mind, I'll just read them to you. It's, we champion the safety and dignity of vulnerable adults. We conduct ourselves with integrity. We demonstrate respect for all persons. And we collaborate to improve outcomes. Good core
2: values good core values and the APS reinforces that through their system right through their organizational structure it's
3: it's very much a part of everyday life at APS
2: without that there's not much that APS can do that is going to be helpful to people without a core set of values like that. And I guess that take takes us back to the point I made earlier. So much of it's about values. You would like to make it about specific laws, specific regulations, specific policies, but it always is going to be about values within the family or uh, within the APS system as well.
3: Exactly. Doing- and so it might even come to a, a decision point where it's not really a capacity concern, but it's a, a respect or a cultural concern, um, and and the person doesn't reach a level of comfort for that caseworker to continue the interview. We'll respect their dignity and try again another day.
2: Cultural factors certainly can come into play in uh, um, in any community. People come there from different cultural backgrounds, maybe more or less acculturated. How many generations in the U.S.? There are language barriers. There are um, uh, nations of origin type barriers and things like that also. That can probably make it more difficult to achieve clarity and to achieve a good decision at times, right?
3: Yes. So we have a full um, set of interpreters, at our disposal, uh, anytime a person requests uh, in communication in person, in person oh, in, good, uh, as as much as possible. Some of the more um, some of the less common ones would have to be by telephone. Mm-hmm. But any any known language is available to us as is sign language or um, other forms of interpretation.
2: Well, that's good. And that obviously is a very important consideration. So let's say that um, the caseworker now has earned the trust of that individual and uh, the caseworker wants to get collateral input, input from other people who will have some relevant information here. So they go to a neighbor. How does the neighbor usually respond to that kind of thing?
3: If they have any sense of the person or the situation are usually very cooperative. They're often the reporter, uh, which we do not reveal the reporter of a re- uh, for an investigation ever. Um, we keep that confidential to encourage people to mm-hmm. report um, and to uh, eliminate retaliation against reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very often uh, that we don't know who the reporter is. um, but In terms of their role to the person? They can report anonymously if they wish. Oh, I see. If they have any concern at all about their safety or they don't want to be the bad guy, um, they can make an anonymous report and we will take it. Um, It's certainly not the preference. Um, Our our training and guidance is to talk to the reporter in every case. Mm -hmm. Um, So that takes one thing off of the table. If they report anonymously, but we certainly don't want to uh... make that not available to them
2: in your experience has maintaining that confidentiality been successful in preventing retaliation
3: i think so Um because there's a lot of people who still live with the alleged victim mm-hmm. um, and so it, that would be a very complicating situation if it were to become known mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> I think it's been very effective
2: okay, good. And uh, are there conditions under which that confidentiality can be broken?
3: Very few um, in the in the case of incapacity would be uh, one possible situation in the case of a uh, a law enforcement issue, a true crime criminal mm-hmm. activity um, then that information could be provided to law enforcement.
2: Now, my guess is that one of the more complicated situations that comes up is where collaterals don't agree, and especially if collaterals are members of the family that are that are related to the individual who's been reported, right? Yes, very common. What do you do with that?
3: So um, the best way to understand that is to understand um, the level of... Um, proof that we require, which is simple preponderance, which means if um, the evidence shows 51% more likely that something happened to 49% more likely that it didn't happen, then that would be a preponderance that it did happen.
2: How is the caseworker protected, though? That This uh, is a very difficult judgment. It is. And somebody's going to be unhappy with that caseworker when it's all done.
3: It, that is certainly a possible outcome. So one of the protections is to have... A supervisor being a second set of eyes to read the investigation and agree with the findings uh, according to policy and the law that governs everything that we do.
2: And so that's what you as a supervisor would do then. The caseworker would say, here's the situation and I need your experience, I need your wisdom, and I uh, also need your eyeballs and your ears in these conversations that they're having. Right.
3: So they actually formally submit their completed investigations to a supervisor on the computer, and the supervisor has to review and approve or reject the finding. Okay
2: well very good um, we are going to go back to a break and when we return for our fourth and final segment uh... i would like to talk a little a little bit about how the public knows or how a family member knows when to report and whether to report so uh... stay with us we'll take a short break and we'll be back
4: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: where did i put my keys what was i supposed to pick up at the grocery store why did i forget that appointment these and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it.
5: Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Neuromatters.
2: We are continuing to talk with Rick Diaz as we go into our fourth and final segment today. Um, we are talking with him about his experiences and knowledge with Adult Protective Services. Before the break, we were talking about the situation in which there are multiple people uh, collaterals in other words multiple people providing input of information and opinions and and concerns and your caseworker finds him or herself in the middle of that and having to make some decisions right, right. Uh, very very difficult decisions again because they're about values really um, sometimes families have many 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 years in which they have had controversies like this other times Uh, families simply see things differently, family members see things differently and they all want good but they can't come to uh, a a, um, consensus on what should be done. So I think for our listeners, the first thing that I would want to say is there is nothing wrong with family members disagreeing about decisions about someone they love, Um, again especially if there's reduced capacity, uh, about living arrangements, about what kind of help they need and things like that. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing, but the commitment has to be to the person, and that commitment has to be bigger than the commitment to the self-service that could come out of it. Right?
3: Exactly. It's it's all about the alleged victim, and uh, the less ability they have to make their own decisions, the more important it is for everybody to have their interest at heart.
2: What do you see as motivations for families to become unfair and, you know, if I may say, somewhat dishonest with APS in circumstances
3: like this? Uh, Very often it's money, Um, inheritance or perceived inheritance or rumors about um, a windfall that grandma got or that mom got um, that they may be able to participate in after mom's in a nursing home. Um, or just you know, misconceptions about um, estates and financial planning and, and things, uh, rumors in the family uh, can often lead to misunderstandings.
2: One of the things that I'm seeing more of in recent years is um, a situation in which you have an older individual or couple whose children are all adults, they're raised, and one of them comes back to live with that person. Now, that one that comes back to live with that person may do that for the benefit of that older individual, but also that person may come back because the person has nowhere else to go,
3: right? Exactly. It could be perfectly innocent for that uh, returning child to be put on the checking account, and it may be totally on the up and up, or it may be totally devious.
2: So, um, and in that situation, other members of the family, let's say siblings of that individual, are going to want to watch, and they are going to want to. Um, uh, well, they they know they know the things that can go wrong, and uh, so they will want to very much stay on top of that. That can give rise to progressively increasing. Um, Chaos, angst, fearfulness, and frustration in the whole setting as well. And I would have to say, as a healthcare provider, that is probably, other than arguing with third party payers over nonsense, probably one of the most frustrating things that I experience in trying to do good for that person.
3: Right. So we call those inconsistencies. And uh, we no, still whenever, call them, whenever, them lies, but <laughs> <laughs> we attempt we make every attempt to find the truth, and uh if we're unable to reach a conclusion that is definitive, um we have the ability to either find that an allegation is unable to determine or it is invalid mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. Now, regardless of the outcome, somebody's going to be upset with the outcome or the investigation. Somebody's going to say it didn't go the way that it should have. Does your office get a lot of complaints from uh, after resolution of a case?
3: I would say, in general, complaints about cases are not uncommon. Um, but. Often they're just a, a, a misunderstanding of what we do and what we're allowed to do under the law. And um, the outcomes of our cases are rarely used to do something negative to a victim or their family. Um, our, our goal is to improve their situation, if at all possible.
2: Is there usually a follow-up to say, did this outcome get used to Harm the original victim. Is there? How do you know when to close a case? I guess is another way to say it. That's a very
3: excellent question. And so, we generally look for an unstable situation to be made stable. Um, So, for for example, um, in the example earlier in in hoarding behavior, if the person is willing. We might pay a contractor to clean up and tidy up um, the residence. Um, if they're unwilling to accept that kind of help, um, then then we uh, we will accept their right to make that decision, mm-hmm. and we will go on about our way and close the case after informing them. You yeah, know, well, there's there's nothing else we can offer you mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't that you haven't accepted. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and close your case. Um, but you have my card. Um, if so you change it can your be mind, you can, call us in. you can call us back.
2: Well, we have just a couple of minutes left and I would like to address this whole issue from a different angle. What can you say to the public, to family members, to neighbors, um, uh, the people at the grocery store? When?
3: How do they know when they should report something? Again, that's a great question. I think um, the best way to answer that is if you have any level of discomfort um, over what you're seeing, hearing, or knowing about a person that you love who is either elderly or has a substantial impairment, um, go ahead and call it in. Uh, You don't have to decide whether or not it meets the legal definition of abuse or neglect. Call it in. That intake worker will um, take the report, and, and if it's clearly not appropriate for our investigation, uh, they can make that determination and refer you to what is appropriate. But more often than not, they'll take every report and let a caseworker who can go eyes and ears on scene in person make that determination as to whether there's something there or not.
2: Okay. And, and also, of course, if it's someone that you know that you're concerned about, you also can talk to that person and say, are you getting enough to eat? Can we bring you a meal over? Um, Just reaching out from uh, one member of the community to another one member of the neighborhood to another as well. And, uh, and um, not, um, well, yeah, I I guess what I was thinking is you were saying that are we going to overload APS?
3: We would be happy to be overloaded and we will um, take any volume of of cases that come our way. Um, We're structured uh, to take any amount that comes our way and and find a way to um, process all the cases correctly. Uh, to the right conclusion.
2: Well, Rick Diaz, I am so very grateful to you for taking the time to um, educate our listenership on this very complicated and very easily misunderstood issue. So thank you so very much. And again, thank you for what you and your family have given to our country in your military service. Um, And to our listeners, thank you for being with us this evening. I hope that this discussion has been helpful, and I will look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters The Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. We'll talk again next week.